welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 1. We're starting a new series this morning. I was up late last night, not because uh, I was studying, but because I couldn't sleep. Uh, I haven't taught like a book study in quite a while. I think it's been over a year at Awaken. So I was laying in bed just thinking like, oh gosh, I'm so nervous, I'm so anxious. So then I just watched reruns of Revolution. <laughs> Which is a real good thing to put you to sleep. You know, it's like, Unbelievable. I had already burned through three football games earlier. I love TiVo. DVR? Gosh, man, that's the best invention ever. It's too good, too good, too good. So um, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to take a look at Corinth, the city, because this is the book we're studying, Corinthians. It was written to a group of people who lived in Corinth. I want to look at a little bit of Paul and some of Paul's journeys, just to sort of frame our, our journey, our time together in 2 in Corinthians, sort of lay the land, lay the groundwork for who are these people? What is this city about? Paul, um, how did this book come to be? Uh, a little bit about the church that actually received the letter in Corinth, and then uh, a little bit on chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So we're not going to go far. This series may take a while, I'll be honest. Um, we're not going to go like one verse at a time. We'll take some, you know, sections and, and whatnot, but um, we're just going to go. And uh, as long as it takes, we may take a break for things, Lent or other things here and there. Uh, but be that as it may, we're going to wear the pages thin in Second Corinthians. You guys in it to win it? Bam. Okay, Corinth. Um, here's what you need to know about Corinth. Corinth was a city in uh, Greece. It still is. Uh, it, it, it was there, it's been there for a very, very long time, like thousands of years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. Um, interestingly for us, in 146 BC, it was destroyed by the Romans. The Corinthians pushed back a little bit on Rome, and they came in and kind of wiped them out, which is what Rome does. In 44 BC, shortly thereafter, it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar. Why was it rebuilt? It was rebuilt because it's a really strategic location. It is on uh, the Mediterranean, on sort of a bay of the Mediterranean. And so from a military perspective, it's very strategic. From a commerce perspective, it's right on the major waterways that lead to and from the areas that all of the epistles are written to. Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians. um, They're all over there. Antioch is also near. 
So it was a really strategic location. So it was resettled, rebuilt by uh, Julius Caesar in 44. Um, here's a couple of pictures of the city itself. Uh, it's, it's overlooks the city, so it's an elevated position. If you know anything about military, uh, especially ancient military, elevation is key. So this is looking sort of down onto the ancient ruins of Corinth, part of it. And then this next one is looking back up. This is called the Acro-Corinth. It's a huge, massive rock outcropping above Corinth itself. Uh, this next one is this, the road, the main road that leads into the town itself. Uh, and at its biggest, it was a bustling city, maybe like a couple hundred thousand people. So it was a pretty big for its time. Corinth was known for a couple of things. Uh, one is a, is a set of games, a lot like the Olympics. Who's pumped for the Olympics, BT-dubs? I am an Olympic junkie. I am so excited. DVR, baby, you love it. Bob Costas, it's going to be awesome. Me and Jimmy Roberts. So this, they had it, they, um, Corinth is on an isthmus. So look that one up. Uh, it's on an isthmus, and there were the Ismanian Games, or the Isthmian Games, and they were every two years. They sort of bookended the Olympics. So uh, this brought people from all over the place near Corinth itself. So when Paul talks about having a victor's crown or using sports metaphors and that kind of thing, he's absolutely playing on common culture in his day and age, which would have been these games. Here's a picture of a, a, a preserved, one of the most preserved stadiums in all of the ancient world. This is in Turkey, um, so it's not in, in Corinth, but this is what it would have looked like. And this is, I mean, isn't that spectacular? Just amazing. Um, and then this next one, I think, uh, um, oh, it was also known for uh, the Greek sort of pantheon of gods, you know, right? Uh, Zeus, and there's, there's an argument about is, is, is Paul Zeus or Hermes at one point in Corinthians, I think. Uh, so Apollo, Hermes, uh, Aphrodite, these are all gods that would have played major roles in the city of Corinth. This, this, one, this next one is the, the temple, the remains of the temple of Apollo in Corinth. And then this next one is the, the remains of a temple of Artem, uh, Aphrodite in a city called Aphrodisia. You can put two and two together. They also like chocolate. <laughs> because it's a aphrodisiac. Thank you very much. So um, this is not in Corinth, but it's a, it's a temple dedicated to the god Aphrodite, which is also in a really terrible pop song. Um, what do you need to know about Corinth, and, and, and what do you need to know about Corinth to get Paul? I would say three things minimum. One is sex. Um, Corinth stood out among all of the other cities near it as it relates to sexual immorality. This is a time period and a, and a place in the world that was very, very licentious immorality in every way, shape, and form. Whatever you wanted, you could get, okay? Corinth stood out among the rest of the towns for like the best of the best. It's like the Amsterdam of our day. So when you go to Corinth, I mean, you can get anything and everything in every shape and every color, okay? Um, so we have to remember that this is the context of this city and this town. This is why Paul addresses the things that he addresses in the first book and the second book of Corinthians, because this was prevalent. Um, one, one writer, uh, sort of 5th century before Jesus, says, to Corinthianize was polite, polite Greek speak for to act immorally. Uh, the sailors had a phrase that was, not for every man is a voyage to Corinth. I mean, this is not for the faint of heart, okay? This place is legit in that sense. Um, so one, that's, piece, that, that's a piece of the culture. Two, the sort of Greek and Roman games and conquest. When the Romans would con conquer a city, there were very particular things that they would do. 
Um, Paul plays off of this in 1 Thessalonians with sort of the trumpet sounding and we'll be caught up in the air and everybody thinks it's the rapture, thanks Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. He's actually talking about the conquest of a city and what would happen when the emperor would come back to the city, not be taken away or vacated from, but when the, 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 they would come back to the city and the trumpets would sound and it was sort of this big parade. So this is all playing in the context of when Paul writes to Corinthians and other places like it. Um, and then lastly, um, if you need to know anything, sex, these Roman games and conquest, and then this pantheon versus monotheism. Um, when you talk about the Bible, do not forget that this thing stands at odds with everything in its culture and in its context. Um, there are other stories that are similar. There's a, there's a flood story. There's, a, uh, there's, there's actually other stories in Egypt about uh, the son of a god rising from the dead. So there are so- stories that are similar to the, the one we have, but this one stands at odds with them in that it is a, a god, one god, who creates and is involved with creation, loves creation, is passionate about creation, sends God to creation to redeem, restore, and remake So it stands at odds with everything around it, and this certainly plays into what Paul speaks about. Um, So Paul and his missionary journeys. Here is just a couple of maps. You guys have probably seen some of these. You may even have them in your Bibles, in in the back back of your Bibles. This is Paul's first missionary journey. Antioch is home base for Paul. This is modern-day Syria. Actually, it's modern-day Lebanon, I think. Um, it's, so Antioch is home base, and he goes across the seas up to another Antioch and spends a bit of time there, quite a bit of time there, uh, and then makes his way back. His second missionary journey, he sort of goes wider and, and bigger, up to Antioch to start, and then through these areas up here. This is Thessalonica. Philippi is up here. Uh, and then he makes his way down to Corinth. Uh, at this way, and then uh, all the way back. Ephesians, Ephesus is here. Uh, and then his third missionary journey, um, he sort of does it again. This whole deal, and then back, and back to Jerusalem. And then he gets captured and goes to Rome and at the end of the book of Acts. And you know that story if you've read it. So um, just, just by, so you have an idea, I want to just put it, this was a disaster the first hour, and I'm hoping it's better this hour. Um, the book was written, or w- this the books of Corinthians, and I'll say that, um, there are multiple, more than we have, were written somewhere between 51 and 56 AD. Second Corinthians, our book, was written in 56 AD. There are, in fact, four books written to Corinth. The first one that Paul writes, we don't have. It's lost. He writes them a letter he goes, he, he's in uh, like Berea, uh, up, up in the north there, and he makes his way down to Corinth. He spends 18 months there. This is Acts 18. And then he leaves and he goes to Ephesus, and he spends three years in Ephesus. And it's there that Paul writes, they believe, the first three of the letters. While he's there, he receives a letter from the Corinthian church in between one and two, which is our, two is our one, okay? He receives a letter from the church, and they're saying like, what do we do? I mean, we live in this city, we live in this culture, there's all these things, so they ask questions about food uh, sacrifice to idols, they ask questions about sexuality and immorality and you know, celibacy and marriage and how do we live all this out, they ask questions about the gifts of the spirit and are there some that are better than others, and Paul addresses all of these in the second letter, which is our 1 Corinthians, tracking so far. He leaves, um, he, he actually comes to uh, Corinth in between letters two and three, and it's a disaster. He calls it a painful visit to Corinth. And while he's there, 
when he's away in here, there's people, other apostles, who are sowing seeds of dissension, essentially calling Paul a fraud, saying that Paul's not, he's not really an apostle, he doesn't have authority to speak on behalf of Jesus, uh, and, and all these other kinds of things. He's not a good preacher, there's no like ecstatic sort of experiences and miracles, and so they question his reliability and authenticity. While he's away, here he comes and he visits, and they call him out. Somebody in the church calls him out in public with everybody around, and it's like crickets, you know, that awkward family setting when somebody says something mean about another person in the family and everyone's kind of like a couple steps back, like you don't want to get caught in the crossfire. And Paul gets really, he gets really upset about this. Nobody comes to his defense. Nobody bails him out. Nobody uh, sort of stands up for Paul when he goes on this visit. So he writes a third letter, a severe letter that's actually mentioned in 2 Corinthians that's also lost. We don't have it, okay? And then finally, he meets up with Titus uh, later on in sort of Macedonia up in the north, and he writes the final book uh, that we have, which is 2 Corinthians, but it's actually his fourth letter to the church in Corinth. All that makes sense? I just find that so very interesting that you know, we have this book and it's like the Bible and it's the word of God and yet there, it's only two of the four letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Like they're just lost. They didn't get preserved. I just think that's so fascinating when we think about the scriptures and how we approach them and they're this, you know, canonized thing like they don't change and yet, you know, there's all kinds of things. This is a church in a city with issues and he writes to a number, a number of different times to them. I think that's fascinating, very interesting. Um, okay, here we go. Now, who are these people in Corinth? Um, because of the culture that we, I mentioned earlier, right, this is a like sex-driven culture. This was a group of people who did not grow up going to vacation Bible school, okay? These people are no good at sword drills. They couldn't tell you who, many of them, you know, couldn't tell you the story of Israel, so they're pagan, Gentile converts to followers of Jesus, okay? They now become the leaders of the church, right? This is what Paul does. He comes into a city, he starts this new community, he raises up leaders, and then often he leaves, and they're left to kind of figure this out. So the group of people that is in Corinth, the leaders of this, the people that Paul's writing to, he even says in 1 Corinthians 6, neither sexual, immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, and he goes on this list, shall inherit the kingdom. And then he says, and you, this is what some of you were. So this is who he's talking to, right? Pagan, Gentiles, uh, the whole idea of like biblical monotheism and fidelity and covenantal relationships and chastity, these are bizarre concepts to this group of people. It'd be like, oh no, that's a terrible joke. Um, so, <laughs> filter, filter, filter. So we have Corinth, we have Paul, some of his letters. We have this group of people who are receiving this letter in this city that Paul writes to. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 begins this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. A couple things that are interesting to note there. First, Paul begins with Paul, a what? Apostle. Why does he feel the need to do this? Well, it's a common greeting. If you actually, there's a, there's a uh, if you go back to Daniel, 
um, when, a, when someone would write a letter to somebody, there was this very common way that you would greet, you'd say your name and like who you were and who you represented and that kind of thing. So it follows a very common greeting from the ancient world. But also, these are people who are not sure about if Paul's real, if he's the real McCoy or not. There's a group of people in Corinth who are saying he's clearly not and for these reasons. And Paul is sort of saying, listen, I am an apostle. Not because I'm claiming to be an apostle, but because God has anointed me to be an apostle. This is a, a mantle that I wear, not on my own accord, but something that's been given to me. And so, therefore, I write to you on behalf of this Jesus. He goes on to say, uh, to the church of God in Corinth and all of the believers in Achaia. Now, this is the first church and the only church that's ever been found to be navel-gazing, like just focused on themselves. Maybe not, right? Paul needs to remind this group of people that their world is not the only world, that their little kingdom, their little church, what's going on there is not the only place God is at work. God's loose in the world by the Spirit. We know this because of the book of Acts. And Paul says, to the church of God in Corinth and all the believers in Achaia all over the place, to the Corinthians, just so you know, they're not, it's not just you. There are people everywhere who follow this Jesus. This is a revolution, baby. Then he says in verse 3, 2, excuse me, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is just the introduction to the book. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. You could skip right over this. Kind of benign words, you know, like, yeah, grace. In fact, grace, the word, uh, the word Paul uses is a derivative of a very common ancient Near Eastern greeting, Corinne. Hey, Corinne. Hey, nice to see you. Grace, Corinne. But he uses charis, charis, a different word. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Do these words mean anything to Paul, or is it just sort of like common greeting, like, to whom it may concern about the matters regarding dot, dot, dot? Is that what we're talking about here? Or is there something more? I would submit to you there is something way more. Turn to Romans chapter 1 if you have your Bibles. Wow, that never happens. I turned right to it. Romans chapter 1, Paul begins. I won't read the first six verses because Paul, uh, this is his most technical letter and he like lays it all out in Romans. Six says, and you also among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. Give it up for Sosthenes. That's a great name. Any pregnant people in the room? Uh, in verse 3, he says, Grace and peace to you from our Lord, our, from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Galatians, right after 2 Corinthians, if you will. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ to all the churches in Galatia. Guess what? Grace and and peace. I could go on and on and on, and I won't. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Titus, Philemon, 1 and 2 Timothy, all begin with grace and peace. Maybe there's something here. Maybe Paul has something to say about grace and peace. One author says, no two words could better describe and embrace the blessings of Christ than grace and peace. So, let's look at them separately. I said before, Corinne is a common phrase that would have been used in, in, in a, as a greeting. Hey man, what's up, Corinne? How you doing? What, what's up? 
but he uses charis, a little bit different, a little bit heavier, a little weightier, a little bit more theological like oomph to it. One author could, uh, here's a couple of, of people's thoughts on charis, the word grace in Greek. Favor toward men, contrary to what they deserve. God's spontaneous, unmerited favor in action. His sovereign, freely bestowed, loving kindness in operation. Favor, benefit, credit, gift. Favor done without the expectation of return. Come on, who needs that? Joy, gratitude, blessing. One Greek philosopher, Spiro Zodiades. I got a lot of names for you today. Uh, He says this. This one's dynamite. The absolutely free expression of the love of God finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of God. And the judges give him a 10. I mean, the absolutely free expression of God, which finds its only motivation in the benevolence, the bounty, the abundance of God for you. It's grace. Caress. Grace. One author says, grace is the central theological concept that most clearly expresses Paul's understanding of Christ's work. So if you're going to take what Jesus does on the cross and his life, death, resurrections, and teaching, resurrection and teachings, there is only one, um, if you're going to take all that and then take everything that Paul's written in the New Testament, I think there are 13 books that he wrote in the New Testament, if you're going to take everything that Paul writes about Jesus, if you could sum it up, his work and what happens... One word, for Paul, it's grace. The central theological concept. For it is by charis that you have been saved, not by yourselves. Not a work of yourselves, Ephesians 2. He says in Acts, this is my, like, I consider my wife, my wife. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I watched Saturday Night Live last night, too. Drunk uncle, gosh, that's funny. Uh, however, I consider my life worth nothing of me if only I may finish the race and complete the task, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's charis, grace. Paul begins the letter to the church of Corinth. Imagine, imagine that you're there. Imagine where you've come from. Imagine the life that you lived and now you've met this Jesus in a life-changing, transformative fashion and you're gathering with a small group of people in a city that knows nothing of what you're doing or how you're doing it or the lives that you're trying to leave. And Paul writes to you and what does he begin with? Grace. The unmerited favor and bounty of God for you with no expectation of return. It's yours, grace. My grandpa always used to tell me there's no such thing as a free lunch. We would sit at his table, my brothers and I, on Monday nights, we'd go over there, and Jeannie and Elmer, blessed memory, both of them, he would, I said something when he's like, Micah, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I was like, Grandpa, respectfully, I disagree with you. I think I said, no way, Grandpa, there is too. And I argued with him, and he, he was just, dif- he was set. There is no such thing as a free lunch. There is always an agenda. There are always strings attached. It's never free, right? If it sounds too good to be true, probably is. This is the world that we live in, right? I remember being invited over to somebody's house for dinner early on in, in, when I was a youth pastor, 
And Laura and I went back and forth, and you know, this we were invited over to their house for dinner, and then of course, what what happens next? You invite them back. It's not it's not a free deal. There's no free lunch here. It's not a, it's not a free ride, buddy. You know, this this feeling of like someone offers you something, and what do you feel? Like weight, expectation. This is our world. This is where we live. This is, there's no such thing as a free lunch. But what if the scriptures stand at odds? What if the scriptures are a beacon that say something else is actually true about God? It's a gift. Grace. Unbe- unmerited favor. Bounty. Joy. Blessing. Abundance. It's a gift and it's yours for free. You can't do anything for it in return. It's not how it works. I'm guessing that if you've been around church long enough, you've heard that message a lot. It's free, it's gift, it's grace. (laughs) That's a joke. I'm guessing if you've been around church and religion long enough, you have not. You've heard a, a different message. One that says, eh, not quite there. Well, you, but not you. Them, but not them. Grace. Charis. Unmerited. Favor, blessing, bounty. Gift. This is where Paul begins. Have you ever been at a place where you needed grace? Where you just blew you drop the ball big time and somebody got hurt and maybe they still bear the marks of that move. Have you ever been there where you desperately needed grace? I was a youth pastor in a foreign, li- for, for, foreign life, former life. <laughs> it was kind of foreign actually. I felt like I was on another planet. Actually, that's how I feel most days, but <laughs> I was a youth pastor. First, I'm a junior high youth pastor. I'm 21 years old. I just graduated from college, and I'm a, I'm a dreamer, right? I love to dream, dream big, think big, and so I'm a part of this little consortium of youth ministries down in South Denver when I'm in, in, in college, and they did this thing where they gathered like 12, 14, 15 youth ministries together, and they did this huge, massive retreat. It was Awesome. It was bonkers. Like 300 kids. I mean, there's so much like junior high sweat, you don't even know what to do with yourselves. All in one place, right? And they gather all these, and I'm like, that would be so awesome. We should do that. So I get my first job up in the north side of Denver. I'm like, we should like try to put this thing together. So I go around, I'm like knocking on doors. That's kind of what you did back in the olden days. Um, I'm talking to youth pastors and like, hey, we should do this deal. What if we had this kind of like group of youth pastors and we did this retreat? And they're like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. We should do that. Yeah. So we go big or go home, baby. I rented uh, Frontier Ranch in Colorado, which is a Young Life camp. This thing is epic. I mean, epic, right? So you can't, you can't rent this place without a minimum of 250 people. <laughs> like, you have to promise to bring 250 people. Well, essentially, you don't have to promise to bring them. You just have to pay for them. You all see where this is going, right? When we rolled in for the Friday night of the retreat, there were like 103 people I lost $12,000 on my first retreat as a youth pastor. (laughs) This is funny now. 
But when I got called to the principal's office, it was doomsday. As you could imagine, one of the guys, like as short as he is wide, just this brick house. I mean, he could have squashed me by looking at me. And then our finance guy, and they're both sitting in the room, and they're like, what the, fill in the blank. I mean, this was like, pause on the church world, fill in, you know, and then pause back in. What the, they're like, do you have anything to say for yourself? This is exactly what I said. There's one kid named Tim who actually gave his life to the Lord this weekend. <laughs> I'm like, you can't, you can't put a price tag on that, can you? I mean, I mean, Jesus like died on a cross. I mean, what's 12 grand, right? <laughs> you can't put a price tag on that, can you? Yes, you can, and it's not $12,000. Wow, did I need grace right there. Just blew it. Nobody to blame but me. Like, the mirror was huge, and it was crystal clear. Have you ever been there? Where you should have been canned. You should have been fired. You, you deserve fill-in-the-blank. And what you get is grace. Now we're talking. This is how Paul begins the letter. Grace and peace. Peace. Interesting, peace. Paul, the Jew of all Jews, right? He says, it, you know, at one point he's qualifying himself. I'm from the tribe of this, I'm this and that. If anybody, it's me. I'm the Jew of Jews. I'm the teacher Paul, the, the Pharisee, I think. What does he say about peace? Peace is the word irene in Greek, and one author says this about peace in Greek, the assurance of reconciliation through the blood of the cross, true spiritual wholeness and prosperity, harmony, tranquility, safety, health, welfare, oneness, quietness, rest. We've talked about a few of these things when we've talked about peace, shalom. The unfortunate thing about peace is that when we talk about peace, often we talk about it in terms of the future, right? Like someday we'll have peace because Lord knows this is not peace. This is more like hell on earth. Uh, Some days are. So we'll have peace in the future, some future date at some place other than here. Did you know that of all of the usages of the word peace in the New Testament, the number of times it's used in terms of the future, that number is once. Every time the word peace is used in the New Testament, it's present tense. It's as if to say, this peace that I'm talking about is here and now. It is for this time. It is for you. It's for this place, not some other place distant off on a cloud, but this one right here, right now. One thing I learned in seminary, I actually learned three, but one of them, I'm on a roll, guys. Come on, keep up with me. One of the things I learned was uh, always read the New Testament through Old Testament eyes or through Old Testament ears. So when Paul says peace, here's something he might possibly have been thinking about. Ezekiel chapter 34. I think I might have even marked. Dang it. There we are. Ezekiel 34, verse 25. 
I will make a covenant of what? Shalom, peace. This is God speaking. With them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest in safety. I will make them and their places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit. The ground will yield its crop. The people will be secure in their land. They will know I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will be afraid of, or make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear scorn of the nations. And then they will know that I, the Lord, their God, with them and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. Does this sound like some far distant land somewhere else? Or does this sound like God saying when peace comes, it actually makes a difference here, in this world, and in this place? Grace and peace, in that order. Grace and then peace. One author, in sort of commenting on this passage from Ezekiel, talks about, you know, the the covenant of peace is characterized by this renewed fruitfulness of the land, and la, 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 la. And then he says, my dwell, and this is only possible, this covenant of peace, when my dwelling will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And he ends with this. We see there can be such wholeness, such creation, creation creation-wide shalom, only if God enters our Conflict-ridden, distorted, oppressive, broken reality with this, initiatives of grace. Oh, man. Initiatives of grace. As we close, maybe a couple of things to ponder. Why do we need grace and peace? Do we even know what grace tastes like? Do we know what it looks like? Have we experienced it? Is the church known for it? Silence falls over the crowd. I mean, let's think about this. What would happen if the church of Jesus, in response to its neighbor, was grace and peace? Grace. Do you know what's been given freely with no expectation of return grace what if that's what's what if that's like our go-to response what if that's like in the hip pocket at all times ready to go not for the wages of sin or death and what if it's grace grace gift blessing god is god's Bounty and abundance and love overflowing for you right here, right now. Grace. I think we're often pretty quick to go the other direction. And I've done a lot of thinking and reading about this. I'm pretty sure that's not our job. I'm pretty sure that this this job of like the conviction of sin because friends, we'll get to it. There, it's, there's enough to go around, believe you me. I mean, have you seen you people before? I mean, have you seen me, right? There's enough of it. We're not jettisoning the idea of sin. We're talking about pursuing wholeness and life and purity and all of those other words that you might associate with those things. So we're not, that's not what I'm talking about. But what if our first response, our get-go, our, our sort of right there ready to go was 
Grace and peace. Announcement. Grace. Peace. I think it might be a different deal. And, that, and that's the kind of community that I'm interested in being a part of. One that says, you know what, God? You are God. And you're big enough to handle it. And my role in this deal is to, ju- is to reflect the light. That's it. I have this one, this one youth pastor guy, T- uh, Tiger McLuhan. Anybody know Tiger McLuhan? Man, he's a- an old soldier. He did this deal where he sort of he, he, uh, rallied our youth group leaders, you know, all of our volunteers, and his deal was this. Listen, guys, youth group leaders, listen up. Ready? Here it is. Here it is. What your job is, get the attention of the junior higher, right? Hey, 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 oh, here, do whatever you have to do. Do backflips, jump up and down, sing a song. I don't care. Do whatever you do. And then as soon as they look, duck. <laughs> like if that's the cross and that's the life of Jesus, then... Hey, hey, over here, over here, over here. And then when they look, stuck. Get out of the way. What if, you know, you can, you, can, you can interpret that however you want to. You know, you don't have to. But maybe, maybe the role of this community, maybe the role of a community like Paul's is to say, here in this place, it's grace and peace. And it's yours. Free. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.